the Eighth Circuit Network. We make things, put them in your brain. Hello, funky listeners, and welcome back to Funk Radio. This is your host Peter, and this is your host Kyle. We are back after a small break for the 2013 holidays and our 75th episode, which was pretty awesome. I enjoyed so, it. So does that make this the 76th? Yeah. <laughs> I mislabeled our episode script. Did you? I can count. Oh, you said it was 77. Yeah. <laughs> Wish looking That's okay. It's hard to uh, think about math. Indeed. Maths and all that. Hmm. So yeah, we both had holidays of sorts. And we hope you did too. Yeah. Because if you didn't celebrate holidays, that's kind of sad. <laughs> Unless you're Jehovah's Witness, in, in, in which case, that's cool. Do they not have holidays of any kind? They don't. They, part of their religion is they don't believe in like the celebration of anything that's not surrounding baby Jesus, which somehow Christ- Christmas doesn't count. So they don't, from my understanding, they don't even do Christmas. They don't do any holidays because, I don't know. Huh. Maybe maybe to them every day is a holiday. What do they constitute as a holiday? Anything like, are you allowed to celebrate a birthday? I don't think so. Huh. I kind of want to Google this. Well, if you're a Jehovah's Witness, you can like us on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash getyourfunk, and then tell us on our page whether that is accurate. There's a website actually called Religion Facts, huh. in case I, people like me screw up facts about religion. That's prone to happen. One of the more well-known practices of Jehovah's Witnesses is their non-celebration of holidays. All holidays, including birthdays, are considered pagan holidays and may not be observed by Jehovah's Witnesses. Wow. Um... That sucks. No offense to them, but what about Christmas? Because that's Christian, and they're Christian. It's I don't know. Well, birthdays, so maybe maybe even Jesus's birthday falls into that. I guess. Yeah. Well, I learned something new today. <laughs> Poor Michael Jackson. Was he a Jehovah's Witness? Yeah, I didn't know that. Kind of part of the reason his whole childhood and all of his brothers and sisters are so screwed up. Was uh, that his father. Jesse Jackson was a hardcore Jehovah Witness, which led to bad childhoods and such. Interesting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we <laughs> want to we wanted to talk about famous duets. A duet being a song sung by two different singers. Generally, they're male and female, but not necessarily. Right. Um, I think all the ones we picked are male and female, so that makes it a little bit more sexy I was just gonna say I wonder if we ever could do an episode of just male male or female female and then we can call it sausage fest <laughs> for the female female ones <laughs> I suppose the whole reason why it's more common as a male female is that generally speaking men and women have different types of voices so I guess they work well together yeah. and also a lot of the songs are love themed so it makes sense <laughs> Now, what would be awesome is if there was, and I'm sure there probably are, I just can't think of any right now, like a male and female duet where the ma- uh, male has a high voice like King Floyd or something, <laughs> and then the female has like a super low voice like Aretha Franklin. Hmm. That would be a cool match. That would be interesting. Uh, I guess, well, no, Roberta Flack kind of has a high voice, but she has such a range. She could do hmm. anything. Yeah. I guess getting to the first one, since I kind of spoiled it for people, <laughs> the first duet that we want to talk about is... You Are My Heaven, which is sung by Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway. That's pretty cool. This song comes off of Roberta Flack's ninth album called Roberta Flack featuring Donny Hathaway. 
It's a very creative title. The album was intended as a second duet album featuring Donny Hathaway and her. However, Johnny Hath- Johnny, <laughs> Donny Hathaway only recorded two songs, You Are My Heaven and Back Together Again, for this album before his unfortunate suicide, which we talked about in an earlier episode. At least once, yeah. Yeah, so Roberta Flack was forced to then finish the rest of the record on her own, so they all became solos. Mm. This particular song, You're My Heaven, was actually written by Stevie Wonder, uh, as well as a couple other songs on the album. So mm. he, I know him and Roberta Flack were also really collaborative together as far as songwriting and all that junk. That's cool. What is kind of bittersweet, surrounding uh, Donny Hathaway's funeral, which was conducted by Reverend Jesse Jackson, The Whispers, this is kind of an offshoot, but I found it interesting. The Whispers recorded a tribute song that same year called Song for Donnie on their self-titled breakthrough album. That's cool. I guess we should, and our listeners should, check that song out later on. That would be, because we we always end up having to talk about future episode ideas, that would be an interesting (laughs) episode idea, is songs done in tribute to other people. That would be cool. Either famous people or, you know, whatever. Yeah. We could, we could probably come up with some stuff for that. Yeah, yeah. That's cool. Mental bank, write that down. I guess we should probably listen to a little clip of You Are My Heaven. The song, It's funny because the song title obviously was completely thought up prior to Donny Hathaway's suicide, but it's kind of weirdly, what's the word, not ironic, but... Kind you could of, say ironic. Yeah, okay. It's weirdly ironic considering that the song is so... <laughs> Thank you, Peter. It's ironic <laughs> because he died. <laughs> <laughs> well, it is. So, let's listen to a little clip of You Are My Heaven and think about the irony because he died. <laughs> I got you here, right by my side. No, this was, I believe, if I, I'm just going from memory here, I think this is the second album that they did together. Yes. Um, I want to say the first one was, had a very, the first album had a very similar title. Roberta Flack and Donny Hathaway. Yeah, I'm sure. Might have been the title of it. I'm sure it was probably something. Uh, it was something really similar like that. creative. Between that and this album, I believe they got into a fight that separated them for many years. That's. And then they got back together and then. Recorded these couple of songs before he died. That's correct. Um, yeah, I don't know. It, Which I think is partly where the song Back Together Again stems from. Yeah, no, no, I think you're right. Um, I don't know what their feud was over, probably creative differences of sorts, but for, yeah. I think like, I want to say like seven or eight years, they didn't really speak between like most of the 70s. Yeah. And then, obviously, by 79, they had got back together again. So... <laughs> As the song goes, it's nice that it's nice that Donny Hathaway, I guess, made up with Roberta Flack, or they could do so before his untimely death, because yeah, that would be a pretty heavy burden for her if he passed yeah. away before they ever sort of made amends. That's mm-hmm. not fun for anybody. So yeah. Um, speaking of Roberta Flack, because we talked about the first one, what do we have up next, Mister Peter? <laughs> uh, we actually have another duet featuring Roberta Flack. This time, she is with Peebo Bryson for the song Tonight I Celebrate My Love For You, 
we already talked a little bit about Roberto Flack, but uh, for Peebo Bryson, if you don't know, he's a soul singer songwriter uh, who was most popular from I was probably the mid seventies to the mid nineties ish. Um, although he's still going around doing stuff today as well. Throughout his career, he's sung romantic duets with a whole long list of famous female singers. I realized uh, this list includes such singers as, as Celine Dion, Regina Bell, and Natalie Cole, among several others. Would you, just out of curiosity, because I don't think we've ever breached this topic, would you consider Celine Dion to be like R and B, um, or is I she suppose. more like pop? Some mix of the two. Hmm, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not her biggest fan. So that's why I was curious what category you would lump her in. She doesn't cross into my conscious very often, so I wouldn't. I'm not the authority on that, but. Yeah. Celine Dion. Nobody thinks about her. <laughs> well, I'm sure somebody does. Maybe she does. <laughs> she doesn't even think about herself. <laughs> <laughs> She's not a sentient being. She doesn't realize that she exists. <laughs> that would make her a much more interesting person. <laughs> Tonight I Celebrate My Love for You was released in 1983 by People Bryson and Roberta Flack. It was written by Jerry Goffin and Michael Masser under Capitol Records. I guess the song was a pretty big success, and it reached number 16 on the Hot 100 and helped strengthen both of their careers, uh, Flack and Bryson. Because when I was reading the article, it sounded like it was kind of a big deal, but personally I thought number 16 didn't sound like a huge deal. I mean, compar- comparatively with all these other... A lot of these other songs are more closer to the top, like number one. But, I don't know. Number 16, in the general sense, is pretty damn good. Yeah. But yeah, it's a pretty good song. I can dig it. Um, I guess we should listen to a clip of that. While thinking about Celine Dion. Yes. And also, think about if you hear any similarities vocally, since Roberta Flack was also singing in the previous song. I, I heard that if you look in a mirror and say Celine Dion's name three times, she appears. Well, tell us on our Facebook page if that happened. <laughs> Tonight, I celebrate my love for you. And then midnight sun is gonna come shine. That was I Celebrate My Love for You by Roberta Flack and Peebo Bryson. Yay. Hey, indeed. So yeah, pretty cool. Going, I guess, to the other end of the spectrum, away from like lofty, soft R and B to more lofty, softy, lofty, softy, to more uh, soul-oriented music. We the next um, duet is "Tramp" by Otis Redding and Carla Thomas, and the song "Tramp" actually was a cover that they did. It was originally a blues song first recorded by Lowell Folson in 1967 and written by him and this awesome guy named Jimmy McCracklin which may be the coolest name in the world J- Jimmy Yo what's Jimmy, Jimmy what's what's Cracklin wait Jimmy 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 McCracklin corn and I don't care <laughs> oh, that was the worst joke I've ever made in my life I'm no, that's not the worst <laughs> that's sad but that's not the worst <laughs> And the song was actually covered by them that same year in 1967. Their version reached number two on the R&B charts and number 26 on the pop chart. So pretty respectable. Hmm. And Wait, so their cover was released within the year of the original? Yeah. Hmm. I know, right? That's kinda, it's, I think this is probably one of those instances of the cover being more famous than the original. 
I kind of wonder about that sometimes, how if you record a song, hoping that it's going to be popular, pretty obviously, um, but then someone else does like it within a year. within a year and it becomes way more popular. I wonder yeah. how you would feel about that. Well, I'm sure if it's within a certain time span, the original writers of the song have to give consent to the song being covered. Right. It's not like, oh, pub- it's open to the public now. Anyone can yeah. sing it and make more money than I did. I guess if you're the writer, though, I mean, you kind of win either way. Yeah, true. Because it's your yeah, work that's being... I would assume you would get royalties somehow right. in that instance. Mm. That's Yeah, that's a very good point. I don't know. So, um, regarding Otis Redding and Carla Thomas, we've talked about Otis Redding numerous times, so I don't want to talk about him anymore. <laughs> but <laughs> I don't think we've actually talked about Carla Thomas too much. Carla Thomas, for those of you that don't know, is an American singer who is often referred to as the Queen of Memphis Soul, and she is also the daughter of Rufus Thomas, which I kind of didn't really know until just now. I did not know that either. Yeah, mind blown. Well, I know Rufus, and, there was like, you know, for a time there was Rufus and Carla Thomas, but I thought they were more like husband and wife, not daughter and son, mm. or daughter and <laughs> father. Close enough. I know, I know my family um, dynamics. So yeah, um, I love you, Dad. I love you too, Mom. <laughs> and although Carla Thomas would go on to release albums in the '90s and all the way into the 2000s, she was best known for the work she completed uh, with Atlantic Records, and most notably Stax Records in the 1960s. Her first record, "Because uh, I Love You," was a duet with her own father, as we talked about, and with brother Mar- with her brother Marvel on keyboards. That's an awesome name. Marvel. And that was released by Satellite Records, which eventually became Stack Re- Stacks Records. Mm. Another interesting. interesting topic yeah. for future funk radio. Records that his- were actually other records. The history of Stacks Records. That's I don't true. believe we've covered that, and they're probably almost as big as Chess and Motown. Yeah. And this that particular album was recorded while Thomas was still attending Hamilton High School in Memphis, which is pretty intense, and it drew enough local attention to catch the interest of Jimmy Jerry Wexler, of Atlantic, he signed them a deal with Satellite, uh, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> she became famous. Things happened. I love history. And it's funny because she would go on to release a couple other singles like Gee Whiz, Look at His Eyes. And I guess during this time of, you know, releasing albums and singles, whenever, she was actually considered one of the finest, quote, northern soul uh, singers at that time. And as we, I think we discussed before, northern soul is... Um, sort of British soul mm. that became popular in the late 60s and early 70s due to the popularity of Motown. Mm. Um, which is funny because she's not actually from Britain. It was just so, I guess, sounding, or so similar sounding to the sound of Northern Soul that she kind of just got lumped into that category. Mm. Which is kind of interesting. She also had an entire album of duets, which, I, which this particular song, Tramp, was on, and that was a huge hit in Britain, so probably mm. also part of what attributed to her status in the Northern Soul community. Cool. We should probably listen to a little clip of Otis Redding and Carla Thomas's Tramp, because I don't have anything else to say. Tramp. Okay. What you call me? Tramp. Well, you, did. you don't wear continental clothes or Stetson hats. But I tell you one doggone thing, it makes me feel good to know one thing. I know I'm alive. That was Tramp by Otis Redding and Carla Thomas. I love this song because I love 
their little at the beginning of the song. I love their little back and forth because mm-hmm. it totally sounds like a husband and wife arguing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it's like it makes for a great song. Yeah, that's funny. Well, uh, kind of like on this last song where you said we were completely going on the under, other end of the spectrum. In a way, we're doing that again. Where Tramp came out in 1967, this next song came out in 2011. So we're going from old to new, sort of. This next song is by Jill Scott and Anthony Hamilton, and it's called So In Love. This song comes from Jill Scott's fourth studio album called The Light of the Sun, which came out in 2011, as I said a minute ago. Uh, The song debuted at number 43 on the Billboard Hot R&B slash Hip Hop Singles chart. This album, The Light of the Sun, is her first number one album in the U.S., uh, having sold 135,000 copies in the first week of its release, which is kind of impressive. Um, It's critically acclaimed and features a neo-soul style that she has become known for. That's also pretty cool. I need to stop saying that at the the end of every phrase that I say. I slowly slowly stopped saying that's pretty crunchy. Hmm. So, I, don't, I mean, if you're going to say that's pretty cool, then i got to say that's pretty crunchy about as much. Mm. But then we'd just be saying, that's pretty cool. That's pretty crunchy at the end of it. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I'm doing so far. <laughs> I'll try to refrain from doing that, at least as just, often. Just, just uh, what's the word? Use more sil- uh, synonyms for cool. I don't that's think pretty, I can do that. That's pretty gas, man. That's pretty gas. So, Anthony Hamilton, if you don't know, I didn't know who he was. Maybe that's bad. He's an R&B singer-songwriter, partly known for his platinum-selling second album, Comin' Where I'm From, which was in 2003, and collaborating with the rap group Nappy Roots on several of their songs. Among many other things, I found this interesting. He also co-wrote and performed the song Freedom on the Django Unchained soundtrack, if you remember that song. That, that was my favorite song off of that entire album. Sadly, this is sort of a aside, I found a vinyl version of that soundtrack dude right $45 who the hell pays that much for any kind of music and it wasn't even like it was some rare thing it's a brand new movie they had like four or five copies of it it's sealed Mm. so I'm just like Uh, this is like the asking price that's a lot yeah stupid Tarantino (laughs) probably because he wanted it released on cassette (laughs) yeah right Needless to say, I did not purchase it. <laughs> For a second, I thought you were going to say, needless to say, I purchased it anyway. Needless to say, money. Money. More money, more um, music. But yeah, no, I actually investigated Anthony Hamilton a bit after that, mm. and I really dug a lot of his stuff, so he's got my thumbs up of approval Yeah. For a new contemporary artist. Well, hopefully he has your thumbs up of approval for this next song, called So In Love. My thumbs are elsewhere right now. <laughs> you funky listeners, try your hardest not to think about that while you listen to this song. That was So In Love by Jill Scott and Anthony Hamilton bit more contemporary than many of the other things we're talking about today yeah but it's all good yeah. coming up next going back to the 70s sort of yeah the next duet we want to talk about is you are everything which is sung by marvin Gaye and diana ross cool 
You Are Everything is a Soul Song, written by Tom Bell and Linda Creed, that was originally recorded by the Philadelphia Soul Group, The Stylistics. So this is also a cover. It seems like... Oh, this is... Oh, okay. Well, I recognize the like, song name in yeah, terms of that. Yeah. Okay. It's, that seems like a theme. A lot of these duets are end up being covers of previous songs. They partnered up for a small period of time when Marvin Gaye was... For, was uh, after, I think it was this, this was after Tammy Terrell passed away, which mm. we'll, get, we'll get into that in a sec. Okay. And it was released as the second UK single from their Diana and Marvin album. I gotta find that album, by the way. Mm. And the song reached number five on the on the UK charts in April of 1974. It also reached number 13 on the Dutch charts. Who gives a crap? <laughs> and number 20. Who cares on about the, the Dutch? And number 20 on the Irish singles. Why is this a th- why? This is America, damn it. Well, the next sentence in your note says it was never released as a single in the US. Do you think which explains that, why it doesn't reach any charts. Do, do, do you think that this, the number one song on the Irish singles chart is that song Cockles and Muscles, and it's been the same for like 90 years? I don't know, but I suppose anything is possible. Did you ever have to sing or play or whatever, or even listen to that song Cockles and Muscles in music class as a kid? I know it, but I don't... Yeah, mm. yeah it's like some big famous music thing. Mm. It's a thing that makes noises. Kind of like um, us. Yeah, we just we just make random noises and hope that eventually they fall into words and construct coherent thoughts. See, when why do you think that why do you think that they didn't release it in the U.S.? Because I know sometimes that's the case. You hear about it that. maybe because at the time they had solo works out that they didn't want to compete with each other mm. or solo projects. I don't know. That could be a thing. That's a very that's an interesting point. Mm. But yeah, that's a shame, which probably is going to make the album harder to find in the U.S. because it wasn't released in the U.S. Um, the album might have, because it just says about the single. I guess. Well, here you listeners there. can research and find out. Or I can do it quick. <laughs> I guess that's our job, is to know these things. The recording sessions for the album took place in Motown Recording Studios in Hollywood, California. This was by the time, remember they moved to California in like 71? Yeah, yeah. Which, unfortunately, like, made them lose half of their yeah. <laughs> band members that basically said, screw you, we're not moving across the country. Yeah, we're staying in um, Motown. And it became a multi-chart success, selling out well over a million copies worldwide. Hmm. It was released in the U.S., the album, not necessarily a single. Mm-hmm. The album was released in the U.S., and it sold over 500,000 copies, which I think would have qualified it for a gold status at the time. That's cool. So, yeah, we fact-checked our things and stuff, so... I can rest. I can rest easy now, knowing that we didn't lead our listeners astray. <laughs> I'm sure we do that anyway. <laughs> we probably do that on a like minute by minute basis. Yeah. So yeah. Anyways, let's listen to a little clip of "You Are Everything" by Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross, and you can realize that you too are everything. That was You Are Everything by Marvin Gaye and Diana Ross. Um, For our next song, we're going to backtrack a few years to another duet that Marvin Gaye was a part of, this time with Tammy Terrell, uh, who Kyle mentioned a few minutes ago. And this was probably the most famous song in this list that we're talking about today. It's uh, Ain't No Mountain High Enough. Easily. Yeah. Uh, The song was written by Ashford and Simpson prior to joining Motown. Actually, I didn't know that. 
British soul singer Dusty Springfield wanted to record the song, but Ashford and Simpson declined, hoping that it would give them access to the Detroit-based Motown label. Dusty Springfield was with Stax? Yes. In uh, Memphis? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. As far as I remember. As Valerie Simpson later recalled, quote, we played that song for her, being Springfield, but wouldn't give it to her because we wanted to hold that back. We felt like that could be our entree into Motown. Nick called it the golden egg. And I guess it was, right? Have you ever, have you ever laid a golden egg, Peter? Were you subsequently labeled a bad egg and then got thrown down the garbage chute? How could a bad egg make a golden egg? Never mind. I was trying to do a terrible reference to that uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Um, I think you succeeded. <laughs> I think I failed and succeeded simultaneously. Well, you said he wanted to make a terrible reference. <laughs> oh, yeah. Shut up. Damn it. <laughs> Something, I mean, just... Why do you think they played it for her when they knew they didn't want to give it to her? That seems kind of weird. Like, hey, listen to this great song that we wrote, but you can't record it. I don't know. Maybe they just wanted to be wanted to be big assholes to uh, Dusty Springfield. It'd just be like, just be like, look at the song we made. You 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 you're not gonna get it. Yeah, exactly. It took me a second to realize what you were referencing there. <laughs> I I do a terrible Borat impression. Yeah, yeah. It seems a little odd that they would show it to her. I don't know, but I guess it was their golden egg, as he said, uh, to get into Motown, because they stayed with Motown for a very long time. Uh, the original 1967 version of the song was a top 20 hit, and according to record producers, Terrell was a little nervous and intimidated during recording because she did not rehearse the lyrics. Terrell recorded her vocals alone with producers Harvey Fakwa and Johnny Bristol, who added Gay's vocal at a later date. Oh, so they didn't even record it together. They were just in separate, separate times. That's cool. Ain't No Mountain peaked at number 19 on the Billboard pop charts and went to number 3 on the R&B charts. Yeah, considering it's the most, probably the most famous song here, I'm surprised it only went to number three. But also, I'm, I guess I never thought about them not recording it together. Sadly, I'm sure... I think um, but that's probably, maybe that's mostly the case. I was going to say, I'm, that's probably most often the case. Because? Probably because, depending on, depending on their vocal range, they probably adjust the recording devices to best fit that person's voice, right. and it's more difficult to, to do so. If you have two people doing it at the same time... Yeah. You know, you're not getting the best of both voices. Well, that way you can mix them separately more easily, I guess. Yeah, that too. Hmm. Uh, well, I guess there was a valley wide enough to keep them from recording at the same time. <laughs> okay, that officially goes down to the, as the worst joke of this episode. <laughs> I can live with that. Peter, is your valley wide enough? Let's Have listen you... to a clip of Ain't No Mountain High Enough by Marvin Gaye and Tammy Terrell. And <laughs> avoid answering... Kyle's <laughs> disturbing questions. <laughs> which I personally prefer over the Diana Ross version. Yes. And that one did become more popular, didn't it? The Diana Ross version? Yeah, I think I it think so. Might. And I, I remember when we discussed the two versions, I was just like, how is that more popular? I don't like it. As yeah. Much. I think this is really stupid. But now you're I, saying you like it more? 
No, okay. I, I'm saying I'm still saying I like the Marvin Gaye version more. Oh, okay. I think the reason I liked the song and the first time I heard the song that it had any sort of connection with me mm-hmm. is that stupid movie with Denzel Washington where he's like a football coach. Uh, oh. Remember the Remember the Titans. Yeah, yeah. There is a scene where they're in, the, they're in like a locker room and they start singing the song for some stupid reason mm. because it's the '60s. And uh, yeah. somehow that stuck with me. And it made me <laughs> like it, it made me like the song. That's funny. So yeah. And their Did, ver- their rendition sounded closer to. Marvin exactly. Gaye's exactly. <laughs> um, Denzel Washington making people like Marvin Gaye since nineteen whenever he started acting. Yeah. Coming up next is um, another fairly famous duet. Uh, it's Ike and Tina Turner's Proud Mary. This song was actually originally record- written and performed by Creedence Clearwater Revival in 1969 is it weird that i always think of clarence carter revival that would be amazing it's like a band that revives him back from the dead you don't need to revive him though because he's not dead that's very true um (laughs) that would be cool though i i approve of that and i hope he forms some sort of like like christian revival church gospel group and calls himself that that'd be awesome so tina turner first covered this song, Proud Mary, in 1970 with her husband at the time, Ike Turner. We, just, we I know we discussed in one of those mini-episodes their mm-hmm. tumultuous divorce. Oh, yeah. But this is when they still sort of got along. And <laughs> the Ike and Tina Turner version was released as a single from their album, Working Together. However, the song actually differed pretty greatly from the structure of the original CCR version. But it's also well-known and has actually become probably one of her most signature hits. That's cool. The Turners, the Turners, the Turners, the Turners. Well, Turner doesn't have an S at the end, so it should just be Turners, right? Stupid. The Turners is. Uh, whatever. <laughs> the Turners version uh, was substantially rearranged by Soko Richardson and Ike Turner. Um, it started off with this slow, sultry tone, in which Tina introduced the song and warned them that they were going to start it off nice and easy as, quote, we never do nothing nice and easy, kind of kinky. <laughs> but they said they would finish it nice and rough. Now that's kinky. <laughs> After the lyrics are first sung softly by the Turners, the song is then turned into a funk rock vamp, which Turner and assorted background singers deliver soulful vocals. So I like the song for that exact reason. It starts off slow like she describes it going to and then it like suddenly hits hard and turns into this psychedelic soul uh like temptations-esque sort of hmm. late seven late 60s temptations-esque sounding romp you know it's funny that you mentioned this because i was thinking a couple of days ago it kind of popped into my head that there are a few different songs that start out slow and then they at one point in the song usually like in the middle or about a third of the way through it picks up and goes more fast-paced for whatever reason i was thinking that might be an interesting thing to go on later on yeah because i can think of a few different examples how many different ideas have we come up with this episode <laughs> three or four <laughs> we have enough to cover the rest of the year now yay uh this song actually reached number four on the pop charts in march 27th 1971 two years to the week after ccr's version was at its peak which is kind of funny hmm. this song also won a grammy award for best army vocal performance in 1972 cool so yay for them I think we should probably listen to a little clip of this song. Okay. Rolling, rolling on the river. Listen to the story. Left a good job. 
city Working for the man every night and day And I never That was um, Ike and Tina Turner's Proud Mary. So, yeah, yeah. good stuff. Do you like this version better, or do you like the CCR version better? I like this version. Nice. I can dig it. So, slightly ironically, our last song for today is called Endless Love, even though this is the end of the episode. That's the worst irony ever. <laughs> oh, the song is Endless Love by Luther Vandross and Mariah Carey. The song was originally written, I didn't know this, by Lionel Richie, who performed the song as a duet with Diana Ross, of all people, in 1981. It was created for the film called Endless Love, which I believe was also 1981. That film was a complete flop, but the song was very popular, and it was the second best-selling single of the entire year, and stayed at number one in the Hot 100 for nine weeks, and was nominated for an Academy Award for Best Original Song. So, pretty much, this was a really damn popular song. Fun note, it was the best-selling single of Diana Ross's entire career, which is really impressive considering she's considered I think possibly like the most successful female singer of the 20th century wow and see we we should have done we should have done their version screw Mariah Carey she sucks that's true (laughs) (laughs) this was also her 18th number one hit overall Uh, on the other hand it was actually one of the first of many number one hits for Lana Ritchie so pretty cool the Luther Vandross and Mariah Carey version was released in 1994 on Vandross's album called Songs. How creative. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I think that might actually be less creative than uh, Roberta Flack featuring Donny Hathaway. At least that gives information about who it's by. Yeah, this is just like, hey, these, is, <laughs> these are sounds coming at you. Album. <laughs> <laughs> Music. <laughs> the album called Songs features more contemporary renditions of classic soul songs by Luther Vandross. In an interview, Vandross and Carey said that she actually helped him pick which songs to cover in this album. And I believe she was also the one who uh, chose this song, Endless Love, that she wanted to do a duet with him. And kind of an interesting thing about her is that, aside from being the most popular female singer on the Sony label, um, Mariah Carey was also the wife of Tommy Matola, who was the president of Sony Music Entertainment. And he was the one who suggested that Vandross make the album in the first place. So... I guess, so she's this president's wife and also a really popular singer on his album, and then I guess was on this album as well. And partly as a result of her fame, that kind of helped um, sell this album a bit. It was really very well received, and it helped kind of boost Luther Vandross's popularity at that point. And it was also his biggest pop single ever, so, nice. not, so not too bad. You were saying that the, I like the original that was really popular, but this one did pretty well too. I was going to say, I like how everyone who sang the song, whether it be original or cover, it was their most popular song ever. Yeah. Kind of funny. So, it must be a really well-written song. Yeah. Well, we'll let you listeners judge for yourself as you listen to a clip of Endless Love, the Luther Vandross and Mariah Carey version. was Endless Love by Luther Vandross and Mariah Carey. Sadly, our love is endless, in a way, because that's the end of our episode. Sort of. Sort of. So, 
I guess. Just, just something to talk about really quick because it's a short episode. Right. Have you seen any good movies lately? I. You know what? Oh, you know what I saw recently? I saw Turbo, that animated movie. It actually wasn't too bad. God. Really? It was. Did you see it? No. Oh, it it wasn't bad. I mean, I I've kind of had some issues with DreamWorks movies in the past, but I thought that one was not too bad. Speaking of DreamWorks, did you see the trailer for How to Train Your Dragon Two? No. Holy crap! I usually don't like sequels, and especially DreamWorks sequels. Yeah. But holy crap! It's like Lord of the Rings with extra dragons. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I'm it's like way have to more. Watch the trailer. It's way more epic this time around. Okay, here's the thing. Uh, I haven't seen any good movies lately, but I've been reading a really good-ass book. Wait, you can read? I can read, apparently. So, <laughs> someone recommended this to me on Facebook, because you know the movie The Room, obviously. Yeah. Um, did the you, guy, did you write a book? The guy who plays Mark wrote a book, and I just came out like a month, a couple months ago. I'm sorry, I just imagined that the book's title is I'm Very Busy. <laughs> but it's really weird, because he's like the most logical, straight-laced guy ever. This whole book is about how he became friends with Tommy Wiseau and how, how their experiences and friendship kind of eventually worked up into this movie, The Room, which, for those of you who don't know, is considered the worst movie ever made. Did, and it's did hilarious Ryan recommend this to you? No. Wow. And it also goes in detail about like how they were filming certain scenes and stuff in this terrible movie and how disorganized it was. I'm really surprised that it they even finished the movie, to be honest. I mean, and that's saying a lot considering how terrible it is. <laughs> but um, I'm really enjoying this book. And I only got it a couple days ago, and I'm almost done with it. It's like 270 wow. pages or so. I might have to borrow that. I would, I, would rec- I would definitely recommend it if you like the movie. I mean, oh, well, we all love the movie. That's how we met. <laughs> that's a good point. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> that's uh, funny. Yeah, that's really freaky to think that this is how we met. Was um, that we watched it Ryan's house. Yeah, and I remember I was making stupid, stupid comments the entire time. I don't recall that. I don't. But I'll I, take your word for it. Yeah. Yeah, I'll have to borrow that, and then you you can give me back that copy of How to Be Black. I think obviously I'm... Obviously it didn't work. I think I'm going... <laughs> I think I need to finish that, because I read... No, go, I mean, go for it. The first quarter yeah. of it. I think I'm going to read it now. Go for it. Because I'm in the... I'm in reading mode now. Yeah, I get like that, too. Like, uh, there's like long stints of time where I just don't read anything and then all of a sudden I'm like, you know what, I'm gonna read. Yeah. I should probably do that. Like, Kindle is charging right now. I should pick some. I have like, mm. a whole bunch of books in there I haven't read yet. Well, I actually bought this book for Kindle so I don't know what how sharing works for that if it does work. Maybe not. Uh, I think you can lend it to, I'll, I'll look it up, but you can like lend it to me and I get to have it on my device for like two weeks or something. Oh, okay. Yeah, so we, we should do that. Let me look yeah. up the name of it really quick. Sorry. I'm very busy. I'm very busy. If you saw the movie, you'll get that joke. Yeah, the the movie because I I just asked my sister um, whether she had seen that movie, and she said no. What's it about? And I and she she asked me what genre it was or something. I'm like, don't even ask a logical question like that, because it's just <laughs> the the whole movie makes absolutely no sense and it's freaking hilarious. It has a whole cult following and everything. The, the book is called The Disaster Artist, My Life Inside the Room, The Greatest Bad Movie Ever Made. That sounds amazing. By Greg Sestero. And even the digital version, which I got, is eleven eighty nine, which seems kind of like a lot for a digital book. But um, wow. I don't regret it. It's It's been a great book. So. Oh, speaking of books, I want to read that the book, The Wolf of Wall Street, just because I saw the movie. 
and it just blew my mind, and I want to read the book to mm. see if it's actually like that insane. Mm. The movie, I guess, because you were talking about movies earlier, well, it's three hours long. Holy crap! Wow. But it's one of those few movies that's like you don't realize it's three hours long mm. until at the end, and you're like, holy crap, that was three hours. Hmm. Easily, probably one of my favorite Scorsese movies, and definitely my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio movie. Hmm. Uh, basically, for those of you that don't know, it's about a real life guy named Jordan Belfort, who in the late 80s and early 90s made a balls load of money by selling crappy stocks, what are called penny stocks, to rich people. And those stocks had absolutely no returns, so these rich people basically threw their money away. But <laughs> the commission for the brokers on those stocks was 50% oh, as God. opposed to normal high-value stocks, which is like 1% to 2%. Oh, wow. So they get rich people to buy like a crap load of stocks and rake in half of that money. They made <laughs> balls, balls, balls loads of money by the mid-90s, and eventually he gets investigated by the FBI, blah, blah, blah. Well, the movie in that three-hour time span completely shows how completely batshit insane his life was. <laughs> He basically did nothing but, like, drugs and have sex, like, literally, like, 80% of the time he was awake. That sounds cool. <laughs> it's one of those weird movies, because it's, like, you know you're supposed to feel bad, because, like, this guy's, like, a total slime ball who took advantage of rich rich and poor people alike to make mm-hmm. a bunch of money for himself. Yeah. But it's such an enjoyable movie, because you're kind of, like, reveling in his depravity just along with him. Yeah. But the movie blew my mind, and... Once it comes out, we might have to, and hopefully you end up seeing it, mm-hmm. we might have to do a, uh episode on the soundtrack, because holy crap, is the soundtrack good. It's like, ton of blues, ton of soul, uh, so a little bit of jazz, mm. so a lot of good stuff on the soundtrack, which obviously, for me, adds to the movie. That's cool. Um, but yeah, I recommend people see it, and what's funny, this is funny too, because I looked up the guy afterwards on like Wikipedia, so he goes to jail, right, for his crimes, he gets like a small sentence because, you know, no one that is rich enough ever actually goes to jail for a long period of time. <laughs> and while he's in jail, in like a minimum security prison, he meets Tommy Chong of Teach Chong, <laughs> That's who awesome. is in jail with him. They become friends, and Tommy Chong actually convinces him to write a book. And then the book obviously went on to the oh, wow. movie. That's awesome. Right? I thought that was hilarious. That's cool. So yeah, that was pretty funny. But yeah, no, good movie. Hopefully the book is just as good. Mm. Everyone go watch it right now. Or go read it. That too. Go read the movie, watch the book. <laughs> I just imagine someone like in Barnes & Noble just staring at the cover. Some employee comes along, what are you doing? I'm watching the book. <laughs> Sir, you can't watch the book without buying it. So yeah, that's Kyle's movie review of the day. You know what we haven't done in a long time is Kyle's Kyle's angry tech corner. Because I haven't been angry about anything. About any technology? Not really. I mean, nothing, <laughs> I don't know. Nothing came what were, out What were the big tech fads during this last Christmas? Because I don't even know. I don't even know. That stupid Samsung watch, but I think that's a big flop. I can't see the watches being a big thing. I can't see any smart watches being a big thing. Yeah. Well, maybe one day we'll look back at this episode and laugh, as everyone in the world has five watches. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know. But I'm not angry about that because it's a flop. If it was like popular and I thought it was stupid, then I'd be angry, but it's not popular. Okay, well, I guess that wraps up our show for today. Probably. <laughs> if you enjoyed our show today, whether it was on topic or not, 
we encourage you to subscribe to our podcast, Funk Radio, on iTunes under the podcast section where we belong. Also, you can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash getyourfunk. And if you like us, you'll know when the episodes come out. And you'll also get other links and cool stuff like that. If any of you guys have Spotify, subscribe to our Spotify account, which is called what? I believe also Get Your Funk. Which is called Get Your Funk, as we post full-length playlists of all of any songs we can that are on Spotify. Mm-hmm. Of all the songs we discuss. So if you guys have the wherewithal, you can go and listen to the full-length version without us getting sued. Yay. So yeah, that was a good episode, and I guess we should probably sign off now. Okay. Well, this has been your host, Peter. And this has been your host, Kyle. Thanks for listening to Funk Radio. This has been a very fun thing to do. (laughs) (laughs) This is what happens when I improvise. (laughs) Okay. You You just sounded like at the end of a date... And, like, you don't know how, what to say to end the date, so you're just like, this has been the fun thing, bye. <laughs> and then you walk to your car like Napoleon Dynamite. Whenever whenever I end a, whenever I end a date, I always end up by saying, thanks for listening to Funk Radio. <laughs> <laughs> Alright, bye everybody. Bye. For more podcasts and the latest news in gaming, movies, and entertainment, visit 8thCircuit.com.